There's a fictional story, and I'm sure you've probably heard some version of it, about a man who went to the doctor, his wife accompanied him. He goes in, he gets a diagnosis, and the doctor asks the man to leave the room. He says, I want to talk to your wife. And so the man leaves, and the doctor says to the wife, you need to sit down. And he tells the wife, he says, your husband is suffering from a severe stress disorder. If you do not do the things that I'm going to tell you, he's going to die within a year. So here's what I need you to do. Every morning, get up and fix him breakfast. Fix him a great meal at lunch. Fix him a a fantastic dinner every day. Wait on him hand and foot. Anything he needs, get it for him. If there's any chores to be done, you do them. Don't stress him out with the chores. Don't nag or annoy him. Make his life as comfortable and as peaceful as possible. And if you do that, he's going to get over this and he's going to live. If not, he'll die within a year. She said, thank you, doctor. And she got outside. She got in the car. She drove her husband home. On the way home, the man looks at his wife and says, so what did the doctor say? She said, you're going to die within a year. (laughs) Thank you, whoever the little guy was that laughed. Um, That funny fictional story highlights something that we see in the church that's not so funny and not so fictional always. Something that Paul is looking at here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, I want you to read with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, there is a whole lot we could dive into here. And there are several different directions we could go. But for the sake of time and for the sake of focus, I want us to look at what Paul mentions here, this tenet or this axiom that we all would hopefully strive to live by, which is if you don't work, you don't eat, right? We like to use that. And pluck that passage out of Scripture to apply to anyone who's lazy. But there's more going on around it that Paul's talking about. The church in Thessalonica was a strong church in a lot of ways. They had a great affection for Paul. They had stood firm in the face of persecution. But they had a major flaw. And one of those major flaws was that they thought Jesus was coming back soon. And therefore, why do anything? I mean, if he's coming back anyway, why break our backs doing all this hard labor? And so there were many people who just decided, I'm going to give up work. If he's coming back, I'll just sit and wait. The problem was that in their idleness, 
They didn't just sit and wait. They started giving themselves to things that were ungodly, unruly, unrighteous. Things like gossiping. Things like spreading rumors. Things that were causing division, stirring dissension. They were folks that were scandal mongers, muckrakers, right? You know what that word is? I don't really either, but they were busybodies. And Paul calls them to the carpet, these meddlers. And that's the context going around what that passage we often pluck out of, of, of context and what it says. You know, if you're not to work, you're not to eat either. Paul points to himself and his fellow workers as the example to follow. You work, you eat. That's just how it is. There's no loaf for the loafer, right? You want food, you get a job, you pay for it. In fact, Paul points to the principle that transcends time when he says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. And what made all of this worse, of course, is that not only were they not working, but they were using their idleness in ways that was stirring dissension. The people were griping, they were complaining, they were criticizing, they were gossiping, they were scandal mongers, like we said, and that was causing a problem. Because what was Paul's major theme throughout his writings? Unity, right? And this was disrupting unity. And Paul brings forth something that also transcends time and something that we see even in this day and age. Whether it be on a team, like an athletic team, whether it be in a, in a workspace, or even in the church, and that is those who gripe and complain the most are the ones who do the least. Have you noticed that? Almost without fail, not always, but virtually always, those who want to criticize, who want to complain, who want to point at leadership and say they're not doing their job are the ones who do the very least. I can't help but think that that's what's going on here. That perhaps those that were griping and complaining, who were busybodies, who were meddlers, are the ones who need to get to work doing the work of the church. Roll up your sleeves and do something productive instead of what you're currently doing. And Paul, never one to mince words, says not just to ignore them. He doesn't say, well, that's just who they are. Just leave them alone. They'll, they'll, they'll be quiet eventually. No, Paul talks about their toxicity and how they can really harm a church and cause major problems. Paul suggests that you disfellowship those folks, at least that you don't pay attention to them that you ignore them, not only that, but that you, instead of spending time listening to their gossip and their slander and their dissension, Paul says that you are to perhaps disfellowship them if need be. 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5, through 5, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh." We don't much like church discipline. We don't like that term disfellowship. That's an ugly word. But part of the reason why we don't like it, actually the main reason we don't like it, is because oftentimes we don't handle it properly. We don't deal with it in the way that we should. Can you imagine? I mean, taking this text here in 1 Corinthians 5, for instance. Can you imagine when Paul said, hand that man over to Satan? Can you imagine how the community would respond to that? I can. Probably no different than 
The community around us would respond today if we had to put someone out of the church because of a persistent sin that they would not repent of. Maybe that person who was just fellowship goes around and gathers a posse and, 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 and has, people, has people's ear as they tell them how bad the church was and how bad they treated them with this victim mentality that they have. And people probably start a stir by saying, oh, those holier-than-thou people, what right do they have to judge anybody? Who, he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. What awful people that they would actually throw somebody out of the church. I mean, where's the grace and love in that, those hypocrites? I can see the, the community reacting that way then and also now. And perhaps churches avoid carrying out church discipline because of the aftermath that they're afraid that they will experience. Maybe it's because they, they, they don't want the bad publicity. But you can't afford to turn a blind eye here. But again, it's all in how you handle it. Because church discipline is not about trimming the fat. It's not about kicking someone to the curb. If you'll notice in Paul's writings, when he talks about disciplining a brother or sister in Christ, it's always in the aspect of love. The whole reason for doing it is that hopefully they will turn around. And that you will that you will receive that erring brother and that they will be a solid child of God again. You know, I'm often asked by preacher friends of mine or elders from other congregations, what would you do in this situation? How would we handle, how would you handle this? And here's one I received not long ago at a, in a small town, a rural congregation. There was a young lady that had been visiting from another church in town. Again, very small community where everyone knows everyone. And this young lady had been visiting the local church of Christ there. She was interested in studying the Bible. And so the preacher and one of the elders were sitting down with her on a regular basis, studying the Bible with her. And she seemed very interested in being a part of what they were doing there in this little church. One Sunday, they didn't see her. They didn't see her Sunday morning. She came back Sunday night. They saw her Sunday night. The next week, same thing. Saw her Sunday night, didn't see her Sunday morning. Next week, same thing. Didn't see her Sunday morning, saw her Sunday night. And so the preacher saw her around town and just said, hey, we've been missing you on Sunday morning. Is everything okay? And she goes, oh, yes. She said, the church I came from no longer has anyone to play the organ. And so I'm the only one that can. So I've been filling in and helping them out on Sunday morning. But I'm always there with you guys on Sunday night. Now, what was happening was because it was a small community, there were a few people in the congregation that were pressing the preacher and the elders to do something. Do something. She needs to make a decision. She can't be over there playing the organ and then coming with us on Sunday nights. That can't happen. He said, what would you do? And I said, I wouldn't listen to them. You know, we expect people to come in the church and be at our level right away. You slam that door on her, I can tell you what won't happen. She won't be coming to church anymore. She won't want a part of you. You know, it, sometimes this is slow. It's an arduous process. Discipleship takes a while. You know, I was, I was somewhere the other night, and, and the gentleman was speaking about, you know, uh, a student that he had in, in school that came from uh, Ethiopia, and he said over there, they study with you a year and won't baptize you until they study with you for a year. Because they want finishers, right? 
And yet we expect you to come in and be at our level right here, right now. You know, we want to give up on people too quickly. And when it comes to church discipline, you can't give up too quickly. Thankfully, we're not left to our own devices when it comes to carrying out church discipline or, or working with someone who may be in persistent sin. Jesus gives us prescription, doesn't he? Matthew chapter 18, you can turn there and you can look at this prescription. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. That's a key right there. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So here's Jesus' prescription. Here's our master's prescription for handling church discipline. Personal confrontation, confirmation before witnesses, public confirmation, or confrontation by the church, and then public rejection by the church. Now, that sounds harsh. That sounds tough. But the whole idea and the premise behind all of this, the, the motivation, the impetus behind all of this is what? Love. Because you want to restore the brother or sister. That's the whole reason you do it. So step one is go and show him his fault in private. You know, this, this might require some teaching. This might require some education. It might be that you talk to the person about, don't you see what you're doing here? This is not right. You know, it may be that they need a little harsher rebuke. It may be that they know better and they refuse to listen. And so maybe you have to, you know, get up in their kitchen a little bit, right? And, you know, you have to lovingly rebuke them. There's exhortation there to make them understand what it is they're doing for them to confront their sin and understand how severe that sin is. However, a rebuke must not be made in anger or it must not be vindictive, right? One who receives rebuke will often take it as they'll cry foul. You know, you probably can't get around that. But we can handle the way that we confront someone. And if it's not in love, then it's not the scriptural reason for doing so, and therefore, we're probably not going to see the best result. The idea is not to publicly humiliate the person. This is done in private, which means that it's between the person that's going to them and the person who did it, right? I don't see anybody else involved in that equation. But what happens so often, we talk about how we don't handle church discipline well. What happens so often is we go and we talk to 10 or 15 other people about it, we, you know, and then we go and talk to the other person. No, you go to that person first. And hopefully, prayerfully, it goes well and that's the end of the story. But if it doesn't, then you take one or two witnesses with you. you know, this all stems from Deuteronomy chapter 19, 15. It's quoted by our Lord here. This is legal language. It's a public accusation brought against a man, and it must be more than he said, she said. Plus, you bring a witness or two with you because then, if you do have to take the next step, then it's not just you who's bringing this information. It's confirmed by witnesses. Again, not he said, she said. That's gossip, right? It's got to be confirmed. And so, again, the idea is to restore an erring brother. The idea is it's done out of love. And if you'll notice here, it's still private. It's still only known between the two witnesses, yourself, and the person that is, that is erring. 
Still private, right? So, this is not a vicious attack. This is motivated by love. And if that doesn't work, hopefully it does. But if it doesn't, well, then it says you tell it to the church. You can't be private anymore. Now, truthfully, if you reach this step, most people know what's going on anyway, don't they? Usually, if you get to that point, the church knows that something's up. And hopefully, it never gets to that point. And typically, it doesn't. Because you know what happens when you confront the person in step one? They typically leave, sadly. At least in our, our, our part of the world, right? Because there's so many choices. And unfortunately, they can go down the road to another church that says, yeah, you're fine, come on in. But if it does reach this point, it has to be brought before the church. Many are lost today because the church did not follow proper protocol or they didn't do it with the proper attitude and the right motivation. Never let it be said that we did everything we could until you followed this step. And hopefully that works. Hopefully they turn around. But if not, step four says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's just a reference to the practices of tax collectors and, and Gentiles. It, it, it was very egregious, and we've talked about the practices of tax collectors before. Public rejection. When a brother or sister cannot be restored by the previous three steps, then this is the only alternative for the good of the sinner and for the good of the body. Notice I said for the good of the sinner. Because what you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul's talking about handing him over to Satan, he's already been handed over to Satan. You don't physically do that anyway because he or she's already been following Satan's lead, right? However, the hope is that by rejection, there's a change of heart that says, I'm missing something. I miss my family. I want to be a part of my family again. But nobody's going to miss something if you're hateful and rude and mean from the very beginning, right? Who cares about that family? But if they see you to be a loving family that always wanted what was best for them, then, then maybe not the next day, maybe months, years later, they turn around and they want to be part of the family again. And they see the error of their ways. Church discipline is never easy. Never. It never goes well. Even if you follow the right protocol, it never seems to go well. But that doesn't mean that we can turn a blind eye. That doesn't mean that we can simply say, oh, well, we'll, let you, we'll just let them be them, right? And you're thinking, why in the world is Chris delivering this? Or there's, there's somebody in here. Is he setting us up for something? No, not at all. Not at all. But I think it's interesting how Paul focuses on those who are stirring dissension, those who are causing division, and they're not contributing anything to unity. In fact, they're tearing it apart. Because there's a bigger issue here, isn't there? There's a bigger issue. Did you catch it as we read through 2 Thessalonians 3? Paul says anyone who disregards this letter is to be avoided. Have nothing to do with them, he says. Because it's bad enough that you want to be lazy and not do any work. That's bad enough. It's bad enough that you're a busybody and a gossip and a meddler. But worse than all of this is that you don't heed Paul's instruction. Because when you don't heed Paul's instruction, whose instruction are you not heeding? The Holy Spirit. That's a major problem. Your mom ever get on to you and call you by your full name? Yeah, anytime my mom said, Christopher Keith McCurley, I knew nothing good was going to follow that. And here we see Paul say, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the full title, which means there's no playing around here. 
Paul's serious. He's appealing to the authority of Christ, and like a general handing out a non-negotiable command, Paul says, stay away from those who refuse to do what they're supposed to. And that's really the key. Paul is not speaking about those who are incapable of working. He's talking about those who refuse to work and those who, by refusing to work, choose to be disruptors of unity instead. The word unity here is a military word that is used to describe a soldier who went AWOL. That's what's talked about here. So let's get this clear. We're not talking about people within the church who need to be kicked out because they sin. That's not what's being addressed in 1 Corinthians 5 or here. All of us are limping disciples, right? We all have that spotted holiness, but you know, there's a lot of spots on us that are not holy. That's not what's being talked about here. You know, I heard somebody say one time, well, that person is a sinner. You know, they, they need to be rejected because you know, they're running the purity of the bride. And I said, well, that means you've got to be rejected too. And everyone in here, right? It's not about I want to do right and I do wrong at times. That's not what garners church discipline. It's the one who persistently does what he knows is not right and doesn't care about God or the rest of the body. That's what Paul's addressing here. Paul fleshes this out further in pointing to himself as an example. Look at verse 7 again, 7 and following. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And I, I don't think that Paul is exclusively talking about physical labor here. I could be wrong, but I think he's talking about our spiritual endeavors as well. I think he's talking about working, you know, as to carry out the gospel and to spread the gospel message. You know, the song comes to mind, we'll work till Jesus comes. I think that's the bigger message here. You know, you're sitting here and you're sitting idle because Jesus is going to come back. And so you're thinking, well, I'm just not going to work. I'll just sit here and wait for him to come back. And, and that's the exact wrong attitude, Paul says. The right attitude is you work even harder, not just at your physical job, but at spreading the gospel. You work even harder until Jesus returns. Everything you do, you do it heartily as for the Lord. And I think there's some I think there's some advice there for us. I think there's an exhortation there for us, a command, if you will, for us. Jesus is coming back. Of that day and that hour, we don't know. So what's the best option for us until he comes back? Sit and do nothing and just wait? Or work even harder? And not just in our physical jobs. In fact, working harder to spread the gospel so that when Jesus does return, there's more people that are prepared to meet him, right? Not only that, but treating our job as more than just a paycheck, but as an opportunity, right? How many of us look at our job as a ministry? And we look at our job as a way that we can reach people, whether it be our coworkers, our clients. So that everything that we do until Jesus comes is working heartily for the Lord. Our physical job, spreading the gospel, it all goes hand in hand, right? So that my life is a complete ministry. So I'm doing until Jesus comes. When Jesus comes back, he finds me doing and not lazy. And so he can say to me, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You know, I, I'm not a big believer in endorsing bad behavior. Never have been. I just don't believe in it. I don't believe in endorsing bad behavior. I don't believe in being an enabler. 
I don't believe that you enable people to do bad behaviors. I just think that's wrong. I know some may disagree with me, but I don't agree with it. Because I believe with all my heart that what's best for God's children is that they find a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I think that's what's best for everyone in the world, and I think what's best for God's children is that that they seek to be a finisher, that they seek to be someone who follows Jesus all the way to the cross, all the way to the grave, so that they can rise and be with Him for all eternity. I think what Paul is addressing, what he's telling the folks in Thessalonica, he's not enabling bad behavior, he's confronting it, and he's saying... Don't enable it. Don't turn a blind eye. Say something. Do something. Because if you love them, you want what's best for them, right? You don't love anyone if you don't tell them the truth or you don't confront their bad behavior for fear of making them mad. Because going to hell isn't in anyone's best interest. We want to be a church full of co-workers, not consumers. We want to be a church that's not a country club where members put their dues in the collection plate each week. We want to be more than a social function. We want to be workers. We want to be a people who is working heartily for the Lord. Not because it's an obligation, not because we feel like, you know, God's going to be mad if we don't. But because we want to leave this earth completely exhausted knowing that we, we gave our full effort to doing the Lord's work until he comes, until, he die, until we die, whichever comes first, right? So, like we talked about this morning, during this process of sanctification, amid this being made more holy, part of that is that we work heartily, that we do our due diligence to take as many people to heaven with us I would love for people to look at Oldham Lane, and maybe they do, but I would love for people to look at Oldham Lane as a working church, as a group of people who are seeking to work until Jesus comes. You join me in that effort? You know, we've had a good day. This is, you know, I, I love Sundays. It's using coach speak, it's game day. I love game day. I love the time that we have to come together and worship our Heavenly Father. But at some point, you've got to go execute the game plan, right? That's tomorrow. You wake up, your feet hit the ground, and you go execute the game plan. Let's be workers. We can help you tonight. If you have a need, if you're ready to begin a daily walk with God and you'd like to study the Bible more, maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, maybe you've done that and maybe you need, maybe you need prayer because you veered off track. Like we talked about this morning, you can't win a race you don't start. And you can't win a race you don't finish. So if you have a need, if you need to do something about your daily walk with God, maybe you need to start that daily walk with God, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?